stay hungry, stay foolish. Four out of five adults report feeling that they have too much to do and not enough time to do it. These time poor people experience less joy each day. They laugh less, they are less healthy, less productive and more likely to divorce. In one study, time stress produced a stronger negative effect on happiness than unemployment. Our guest offers us a playbook for taking back the time you lose to mindless tasks and unfulfilling chores. We welcome author of Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Ashley Willens, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show and I'm under the clock more than ever before <laughs> with a guest. <laughs> your, your time is so well organized, but I just want to mention that I have a copy of the book up for grabs for our listeners and our viewers. Just sign up to the Innovation Show.io newsletter and you can be in with a chance to win that. So let's get into it, Ashley. I wanted to dive straight into something you said at the very start of the book. You said, as young adults, we learn quickly that time and money are set against each other. You became fascinated with this trade-off as a young student yourself. That's right. So I became really interested in the trade-offs that we make between time and money on a daily basis and over the course of our lives, like when we're making career decisions. I'm a social psychologist by training, and in the lab that I worked in, a lot of the research we were doing was focused on how we don't always spend our discretionary income in ways that are most likely to promote happiness. So we forego opportunities to give money to charity, even though that's really a powerful predictor of positive mood. And we, me and my advisor started to wonder, well, do we also make similarly bad decisions when it comes to time? And maybe it's because of these suboptimal trade-offs that we're making between time and money. And so we really started to investigate just on a descriptive sense, uh, who makes, how do these trade-offs work on an everyday basis? Are there some people who walk around being more focused on time and others that focus more on money? And what are the implications of these trade-offs for our happiness? Yeah, and I love something you said, you said our decisions sneak up on us, and that at any given choice, whether it's a big decision, like a career to choose, or a tiny one, whether to use our last two vacation days seem inconsequential at the time, but they add up over time, and they become a big element of our lives. This relates to this idea with why we all feel so time poor in the first place. These small losses of free time often go missing in our everyday life. So it's very easy to lose 30 minutes, an hour, two hours to technology, to checking email without even really recognizing it's going missing. However, we're a lot more careful with our finances because Money is has a tangible value that's sort of consistent across time. And so it's much easier to track than small losses of time. And so this is really important. I think actually one of the takeaways of my research is really that people who are more conscious about how they spend time on an everyday basis are happier because they're more aware of the ways that their time goes missing on an everyday basis. You thought of everything when you study time, including the wealth gap essentially and some of your friends said this well obviously people who are more wealthy are going to have more time but you took that into account because you studied 
diverse groups of people from multimillionaires to the impoverished people themselves? More or less the overall pattern of time poverty and unhappiness is that people who are very wealthy and people who are struggling to make ends meet tend to be those who are the most time poor, but for different reasons. So the wealthy among us, although they should be able to give up some of their discretionary income to save time, seem against that general idea. So in one study of uh 800 millionaires that we surveyed in the Netherlands that were part of an elite bank, only about half said they spent any discretionary income to save themselves time. And there's great economics research suggesting that as we make more money, our time becomes more economically valuable. And anything that's valuable is perceived as scarce. So people who are making a lot of money also feel tend to feel more time poor because their time feels like a more limited resource as it's worth more money. And they also tend to fill their free time with even more work and commuting, shopping, all activities that are associated with greater stress coupled with their lack of willingness to give up money to save themselves time. And that's sort of a perfect storm for these feelings of time poverty and being overwhelmed. However, on the opposite end of the income distribution, a lot of these feelings of time poverty are due to objective constraints. People who are struggling to make ends meet might work multiple jobs that involve commutes all over the city. They might live further from their place of employment, and they're more likely to be single parents who are juggling more demands on their time and are also struggling to make ends meet and, and working a lot of a lot of hours or hours that are not as predictable. And so what we really see is that this time poverty problem afflicts almost everyone in society and can have negative effects on happiness as a result. But I love the way throughout the book, you give these concrete examples, people that you've interviewed, people who you know, even in your own experience, but you give us one of these. And I think everybody has an example of this. This was Thomas and Nicole and the Swiss Alps trip. Yeah, so I'm happy to elaborate. That's actually a story that came from one of my colleagues. Um, I've anonymized all the names, so it's all so it seems fictional that <laughs> this is a true story. So my colleague was telling me, Oh, you know, Ashley, I love your research on time money trade-offs. Let me share an example that might be helpful for you. I was a a busy executive, as was my husband, and we never really felt like we were in the same city because often we weren't and we didn't spend a lot of time together. And I remember I had just taken a new position at my company and my husband had the opportunity to take this amazing all expenses paid trip in the Swiss Alps. It was going to be glorious. He was going to do one work meeting and then have four or five days in a five-star hotel, super swanky. And she made the decision not to go. She said, well, I just took this job and I should pro I have this meeting. I mean, I could move it, but I probably shouldn't. And then what resulted is that this happened a long time ago, 10 or 15 years ago, but it stands out as such a striking example because her husband ended up going with his sister. They had the best time ever. They relived this trip every single year. And every time the story comes up, Thomas asked Nicole, well, what was that meeting about again that you had to do that was more important this than this trip? And she says, I, I honestly can't remember. And I think, again, this emphasizes that so often we make the decision in the moment thinking we'll have that an opportunity again to have that experience in the future or to experience happiness later. And so we put work, productivity, making money as uh, the decision that we make now thinking we'll be able to have happiness and positive experiences in the future. However, as this year has so strongly 
emphasized is the future is uncertain. If there are things that would bring you happiness and joy, that'd be a memorable experience, you should do them now. Don't put them off into a hypothetical future that may not arrive. And so I think this story really clearly highlights a few of the key themes we often forego time and happiness at the expense of making money. Often work feels very important in the moment, but at the in the grand scheme of your life is not as important as you're giving it credit in the moment. And that we really need to capitalize and not could defer all of our happiness to the future. I hear this so often from my students. My students always say, well, I'll just focus on time after I'm got this executive position or I've made this much money. And this if then thinking is really detrimental to happiness, I'd say you need to be at least focused equally on time and money now in the moment um, in order to maximize your happiness now as well as your happiness in the future. And I mentioned how you do it brilliantly throughout the book, you also you bring in a diverse group of people and you you contrast Nicole as a high level executive with 15 year old Usha, who experienced this same thing. And I love how you tell this story. Usha is someone that I met in the context of my field experiment projects in Rajasthan, India. So as I mentioned, I'm also studying alleviating time poverty among some of the world's um, most financially and temporally constrained, so working women living in developing countries. And so what Usha's story exemplifies is the fact that the demands of her personal life, i.e. the amount of chores that she has to do on an everyday basis, get in the way of her being able to fulfill her professional goals. So she has to walk eight to 12 hours each day, every day to fetch water for her family and having to do because they don't have a, a well in their household and having to do this each and every day prevents her from being able to attend school. And she really wanted to become a teacher, but she thinks that this this time tax that she's experiencing is going to get in the way of her goals. And so this really exemplifies how time poverty is not just an individual decision-making issue, sure, that, you know, we often prioritize money and productivity over time, but it's also a societal issue. So some of the solutions of time poverty aren't just up to individuals. Usha would love to not have to walk 10 hours a day to collect water for her family, but she can't. She's trapped. And so this is where I also talk in quite a bit of detail in the book about the role of policymakers, of organizational leaders in helping all of us put time first so that we can have enough time to pursue our personal relationships and our professional goals. It's one of the reasons I think your work is so important, even from the perspective of managing time. So if you have it, maximize it, not only because you'll regret it later on in life, but even for things like learning, because one of the things I think in this world of rapid change, like you mentioned, is we need to learn and unlearn in permanence. And we need to make the time for that, because that's going to become crucially important where joblessness through artificial intelligence and automation is going to impact how we work. So therefore, having time to learn and add more lenses through which to how we see the world become increasingly important. I just was reading an article the other day, I was writing an op ed and uh, what the writer was talking about Forbes contributor was talking about the 3030 rule. And it really resonated with me. I talk about in the, so the 3030 rule is this idea that you should spend 30 minutes a day, working toward a goal that won't pay off within the next 30 days. So it's not 30 minutes checking your email for a task that's due next week. It's 30 minutes pursuing long-term 
goals, like learning how to code, like updating your skills in your job, whatever that might look like. Um, and I think one thing that I talk about in the book is that these feelings of time poverty, being overwhelmed on an everyday basis, actually make us more focused on things that are urgent but not necessarily important. So this is why our inboxes go to zero when we're under a writing deadline, because it gives us that sense of competence and control over our schedules. It's natural. We want to feel good about ourselves as human beings. And so we gravitate toward lower level tasks that might feel a little less onerous and give us that quick win. And I think that our workplaces do exactly need to give their employees time to innovate and time to learn and make it part of their culture. So I just wrote a case or I'm currently writing a case on Kraft Heinz and they actually have a chief learning officer. So someone in the C-suite who's trying to build a culture of learning and innovation. And I think more companies are going to start following that trend if they haven't already, but it's not just about offering these different programs to employees. It's also about giving them the time to put their urgent stuff aside and actually commit to learning a new skill. I study some of the the studies that come out about the top required skills for this kind of fourth industrial revolution that we're entering into. And time management is one of the top ones. Managing your time, managing your tasks becomes really, really important. And it's for that reason as well, because we need to be able to prioritize what's most important, not urgent, as you say. But I, one last story you share in the introduction, and this one is where you have a little bit of skin in the, in the game. This is with Alice. Yeah, so um, <laughs> it, Alice is someone I know quite well, um, <laughs> and uh, she was making a decision at the end of graduate studies of whether or not to choose a job that made more money and had more prestige, but it would involve a cross-country move, or a job that was in her uh, local government. Um, so it would be highly impactful work, but not necessarily high, high pay. Um, but she would be able to stick close to friends and family. And I'll let you, I'll let the readers, uh, learn about what Alice does in the, uh, book. Uh, but this trade off between time and money, again, I think if we're listening to the story, it seems obvious. New grad should definitely take the higher paying, more prestigious job that's more focused on money, maybe a little less intrinsically satisfying. However, I have data that we just published that came out in Science Advances last year showing that navigating major life decisions and putting time first actually produces increases in happiness two to three years later. So we tracked senior college students and about 2,000 of them, asked them whether they value time over money or money over time, and then tracked their career choices and happiness two to three years after graduation and saw that students who were time-focused chose jobs for more intrinsically satisfying reasons because they wanted to do something versus they felt like they should or they needed the money. And those students reported significant increases in happiness and job satisfaction two to three years after graduation. When we're on the outside of an activity, we often prioritize factors that are measurable, like how much money am I going to get? What's my job title going to be? And we sort of discount these intrinsic factors, like where do I have to move? And do I know anyone there? And will I have any friends? What will my partner feel about that decision? And those actually become the most important characteristics when you're actually in the experience. So money, status, prestige, that kind of fades away when you're in your day-to-day -day life. And so I think my research and my personal experience and Alice's personal experience really underscore the importance of focusing on these intrinsic factors in making major life decisions. This also plays out in contexts like consumer decisions. So when we're thinking about 
where to live, we often focus on how much house can I get for the money and not how much time is the house going to cost me with commuting. It's a little less relevant in this current work from home environment that we're in. But I think it's another representative example of how we often focus on measurable features of a decision that we can quantify in terms of money and sort of discount the other factors like time that actually are central for predicting our happiness in the long run. It's something I wanted to emphasize, actually, because some people feel under pressure because the organization expects them to do extra time, etc. And I wanted to give you my own example here for maybe it's a case study for you in the future. But I, I spent uh, a decade as a professional rugby player and I retired into the 2008 recession. And because of that, I had to I, I start off as an intern. And I was 31, my wife was pregnant, we had mortgage, all those kind of things. And I coached then a team as well. And I got some money from that, some income from that. But because of that, when my son was born, I used to leave the house at 5am and get home most nights at 9.30pm. And I calculated through your book, I worked there for eight years in this organization, very commercial, and I kind of set it up and moved up through the ranks and I felt great for my ego, all that kind of thing. But across the eight years, I calculated that by going in at seven and leaving around 6.30, I did an extra three and a half hours a day, equating to about two and a half days a week, which across eight years was like almost two years extra work. And here's my point. When I left, nobody went, hey, I just want to mention Aiden here over here. It's great. He did two extra years. No one actually cares at the end of the day. And I think that's the point that you need to prioritize your own life, your own experiences and your own memories. And it's something that we all let slip. And it's only later on when we regret them, that we can make changes. And it's why I think your work is more important than ever before to intervene and give us a toolkit to make a change early. So we're not regretting things later. I love that story. And this sentiment resonates with me, especially given that the pandemic has, we've seen in our data, really encourage people to focus on what really matters to them. However, on the flip side of that, working and being a working parent has never been harder. And we're in an economic recession all over the world. And whenever we feel financially insecure, irregardless of how much money we have in the bank, my data suggests we're much more likely to focus on money and productivity as opposed to leisure because we're worried about what our financial future might be. And so we're even more willing to sacrifice our personal time for professional pursuits that may or may not pay off. It, you know, it's possible that your organization, if they're going to lay you off, would have done it anyway, even if you didn't put in that extra hour every single day. And what we're seeing in our data is that we all should have an opportunity to have an extra hour of free time since we're not commuting. The average commute length in the U.S. is between 45 and 60 minutes. And yet what we see in the data is that employees are filling that time with work. Um, they're working longer later, sending more emails, having more meetings. And so I think now it is more important than ever that we all start to really carve out boundaries between work and home, even when we're working and living in the same space. Before we launch into some of the toolkits that you give, which are fantastic, and we won't get near most of them today at all, but I'd love to give a couple to our audience. 
I loved the exercise at the start, which is the Taylor or Morgan exercise. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the origins of this exercise. As I was mentioning at the beginning of this conversation, we're really trying to understand whether there's people who sort of walk around in the world being willing to give up money to have more free time versus being willing to give up time to have more money. There's been a lot of research in social psychology looking at materialism, so the extent to which you enjoy nice things as being a negative predictor of well-being. There's also research suggesting time stress contributes uh, negatively to happiness. However, there wasn't anything, any measures kind of getting at the sense to which people were sort of in recognition of the fact they make trade-offs on an everyday basis and prioritize time or money or so which resource they prioritize. So this activity in the book asks you to identify in your own life who you're more like, Taylor or Morgan. Taylor prioritizes time over money, is willing to give up money to have more free time, such as by working fewer hours and taking more unpaid vacation. Morgan values money more than time, is willing to give up time to have more money, such as by working more hours and foregoing paid and unpaid vacation. And what we find in our data is a pretty equal split, no matter where in the world we look, where with a slight preference for people saying they're more like Taylor as opposed to Morgan. And I think it's worth thinking about this sort of proclivity on a spectrum. None of us are going to make decisions consistently time first all the time. There might be things that, you know, we don't like outsourcing. Maybe we don't want to pay for a cleaner. So we might do the chores ourselves. We're not going to be completely consistent in our preferences. However, I think it's worth for all of us identifying whether we're more like Taylor, more time focused or more like Morgan so that we can start to adjust our decisions and even our consumption slightly around the margins um, in a way that's going to help us have more time and feel happier. So as a very concrete example, I throw myself under the bus in my book as a good uh, Canadian, good self-deprecating Canadian. Um, and I, I out myself as being a Morgan. I say I'm junior in my career. I wasn't making money for 10 years of my life. I have some catching up to do. And so I'm definitely more work and money focused at, at this point in my job. We're, we're trying to have kids. So I'm thinking a lot about trying to build my net worth and focused on being as successful as possible um, at this point in my career. And so I put a lot of focus in my life on work and money and productivity. And so, and I know that about myself. So I also try to do other things to counteract this more Morgan focus. Um, so I plan and schedule my leisure so that I'm very deliberate about the fact that I'm a planner and I like to schedule. And we also talk about this in the book too. Are you more clock or event focused? Maybe we won't get there today. Um, so I need to put free time in my calendar so that I actually follow through to do it. Um, I also know that I don't have very much discretionary time. My, my fiance is an ER physician, so he's also very busy. So we outsource where we can. We spend money to order takeout. Um, we don't have a cleaner or anything like that. We do it, but we also are pretty um, efficient at who does what in terms of the chores. Um, and so it's about cultivating a general awareness of how you typically make decisions. Are you more money focused or time focused? And then making other decisions around that general preference to kind of counteract your focus. Maybe if you're more time focused, you're like, oh, maybe I should actually take on a side hustle or I have a little bit of time to think about um, 
what I want to do, like creating meaningful leisure activities and hobbies. So I think regardless of whether you're a Taylor or a Morgan, there's a lot of opportunity to optimize your life that in a way that's consistent with your perspective. So actually, you mentioned uh, clock time versus event time. We all know people who are different that way. But it's really helpful to understand it because then you have a little bit of empathy for some people who are wired differently and perhaps who value time differently than we do. I thought this was such a helpful way to to understand others. It's based on some great research suggesting that we, in addition to having a default style with prioritizing time over money, we also have a default way that we like to schedule our time. Some people like me are more A-type and like to do things by the minute. So you, you, if you're one of these kinds of person, people, you're more of a calendar time person, you say, well, from eight to nine, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to go for a jog. And from nine to 10, I'm going to have my first meeting. And from 10 to 11, I'm going to have my second meeting. And your day goes like this, you just time everything to the clock or to the calendar. However, if you're more of an event time person, you actually build your day around the activities that you want to do on a daily basis. So you're more the kind of person that will say, well, in the morning sometime, I know I want to get some exercise in. Then I want to have my first meeting so I can plan this task with a colleague. Maybe that'll run a little later than 10 o'clock. And if we're not quite done, we should keep going. And so it it really is about the preference for how rigid you are. Do you end your task when the clock tells you to? Or do you keep going or end early when the task is done or depending on your goal progress? Um, and I think it's a really helpful. There's no kind of best path uh, to efficiency and productivity. People have default styles around both. And of course, our workplaces influence our style, you know, like if we're even if we're an event person, and our, you know, our boss tells us the meeting is from nine to 10, we're not going to drag out the meeting for half an hour, even though we think we could use that additional time. So our preferences are constrained by our environment. However, I also think it's important to recognize if you're more event or clock time focused, so you can leave appropriate amounts of slack into your calendar. If you're more event time, don't schedule things back to back. It'll probably make you pretty miserable. In contrast, if you're more clock time, try to get your colleagues and your friends to tell you exactly when they're going to call so that you're not anxious about the uncertainty of not knowing when something is going to land on your calendar. I actually use, I think, I don't know if you can see it behind me, the Pomodoro technique. I use the little tomato uh, timer. And I, I do, I, I actually never thought of it until you brought it up as um I'm probably more uh, I'm probably more clock orientated in my in my events in that I try to get them done in the time I allot to them and I don't I don't let them go over but I do leave a little bit of um, I call it kind of like a mental amuse bouche time <laughs> so I I kind of have time to clear my palate my mental palate before I go into the next thing I think that's really important and I I read once that. Imagine you walked into the CEO of a business or the leader of a business and they were staring out the window. Most of us would be going, oh, that's great for you. You have all the time to do that. But it's actually so important for a leader to be able to schedule that time, which you call slack time. Yeah, I I love the idea of thinking about slack time as an amuse-bouche. I've never thought about it that way, but I love it. Um, it's really important. To- Use it. You, you're you're French. Are you French Canadian? No, from the West Coast. So maybe uh, you can fine. use it. You, yeah, I'm totally. It's kind of. It's, I'm, I'm gonna steal that. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so the the reason I advocate for what I call slack time, but your term is much better, um, is this idea um, that 
meetings create cognitive residue. And so research suggests that if you stack your meetings too close together, even if you're a clock time person, at the end of your first meeting, you're worried about the next meeting. Your, your mind is already pulled out of the present and into the future upcoming meeting. And that this is even true for leisure. So there's been some great research showing that if you too tightly schedule your leisure activities together, they start to feel like work and you don't enjoy them to the same extent. So slack time is really important, not just between meetings, but also over the course of a week. So I talk about in the book how we also need to leave time and space for informal, casual conversations with people we haven't met. I talk in the book that one of the interviewees that I was speaking to during the time that I was writing the book would leave Wednesday afternoons open because she would find that by Wednesday, maybe the grind of her week was already getting to her. And so talking to new people that were outside of her social network kind of provided her a pick-me-up in the middle of the week and also gave space in her calendar for these informal social interactions, which are so important for creativity and networking. Um, you know, uh, weak tie interactions are from the sociology literature, some of the best for happiness and for creative ideas and productivity. And so she would just schedule all of her Wednesday afternoon for these informal conversations. And I think that is a really important approach, especially for leadership. So one thing that we, we've seen in our data and that some of my colleagues have data on is that CEOs also say they spend about 20 to 30% of their time engaged in activities that are not necessarily mission critical, suggesting they're also very time poor, despite the fact they have EAs and are very tightly regimented in terms of their calendar. And it's, it's interesting to think about what you could potentially do as a leader if instead of doing all of these tasks that you feel aren't mission critical, you took those tasks out of your calendar or delegated them or said no more often and left that space for these informal social interactions. I was just reading an article yesterday about an employee at, um, I think it was, yeah, at Frito at Lay. Um, and the CEO took a call from him uh, and he was a janitor in a plant at the time who had an idea for a new chip brand. And the CEO actually took his call. Um, and, uh, you know, this person ended up being very successful and becoming a VP. But in light of this conversation, it's like most CEOs would say, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy to meet with this person. And this product ended up being massively successful. This person then was promoted from janitor to VP, uh, made $20 million off this initial product innovation. And I think that story in light of this conversation underscores the importance of leaving enough time in your calendar to say yes to interesting conversations that could potentially lead to your next innovation. I love that. And the story you tell in the book as well is about somebody leaving that time. And I love the, you know, to, to even connect with a, a, a weak tie. Because that's where both innovation happens, like your story demonstrates, but also where opportunities arise. And this happened for one of the subjects you mentioned in the book. The general idea is that this person was sort of, I think they had recently been laid off, actually. And so they had more time to go grocery shopping than they normally would. Usually they're just in a hurry in this efficiency mindset, trying to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. But this person had a bit of time off. So they're wandering around the supermarket, sort of savoring the present moment and ended up having a conversation with someone who then gave him a lead for his next employment opportunity. And so 
allowing, and I talk about this in the book related to some research suggesting that we want to leave time in our days for spontaneity. So when we're too scheduled, we're too focused on productivity and efficiency, this can actually backfire. We become overly focused on squeezing the most value out of every moment. And in doing so can ironically harm the value of our moments because we eliminate these casual social interactions from our lives if we're too goal-focused when we're in leisure time or even at work. I, I thought about it as a you know, the whole idea of getting into flow and high alpha and all those different brain states that that happens that when you're when you're learn when you're really focused, you you can't innovate because you're focused on a, a delivery. And one of the great guests we had on the show before was a lady called Anne Janzer. And she she wrote a book called writing to be understood. And she gave this great example of when you're writing and you as a writer will understand this is that you're either in scribe mode, which is that really like focused mode, which is editing and going over your edits, etc, or else you're in muse mode, which is kind of letting in the ideas and ruminating, etc. And actually, it's the same with innovation, you need to be in muse mode, to come up with the ideas and then scribe mode to execute them. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's almost like we we've actually shown I have some causal data that we've never published off of my dissertation, showing that even the way you think about a block of time can influence how creative you are with that block of time. So we gave participants an hour to work on a set of both sort of these um, muse tasks and these more implementation tasks. So we had both in our experiment and people had an hour they could freely choose between these activities. And when we framed the activity as, or the time allotment as open-ended time, even though it was the exact same amount of time, people did much better in the creativity tasks because they weren't worried about trying to get through everything. They left more tasks on the table, so they finished fewer things, but they were more creative during that period of time, whereas people who were really conscious of how much time they had to get all of the tasks done and were in this close-ended time mindset condition completed more tasks, but less creatively. So I do think that there's definitely something that we've seen even in our data, that regardless of how much time you have, you can change the way you're showing up to it by simply focusing more on the present moment or more on goal completion. Makes total sense. You're priming yourself almost with how you think about it. Um, I mentioned the, the mental amuse, amuse bushes I take. And one of the ways I do it, if I'm going to write I'll just take five minutes and I'll look through some art, some digital art, like online, I don't, you know, pull it, I don't have a gallery <laughs> that I go to. But it, it's just a simple thing to kind of and then it sparks ideas, which is great. And you know, and that's one of the th reasons I do it. But um, I wanted to jump back to something you said there. You talked about leisure time, and how it's broken for many of us. And I love this. So this was time trap number one. And it's technology, time confetti, and the broken promise of leisure. And here you say, for example, having leisure time at 7pm, and you're like, I'll just check my email. I'd love for you to take us through this. Time confetti was a coin termed by Bridget Schultz, who wrote an amazing book on time and happiness from her own perspective. And this term, I think, really does explain a lot of what happens to our leisure in this age of constant distraction. So we actually have more discretionary leisure today than we did in prior decades. However, we've never felt more stressed than we do right now. So what accounts for this discrepancy? I talk about the fact that our technology distracts and disrupts our leisure. So we might have had one free hour from seven to eight after the dishes are done to spend time with our 
friends or family or to work on a hobby. And now we have that same hour, but it's fragmented into all of these small blocks of time. Every time we check our technology, it's actually eating away at minutes of our leisure. And on top of the objective amount of time that goes missing, it's also subjectively making us feel more time poor because our technology is reminding us of all the other things we could or should be doing. One of the psychological underpinnings of these feelings of time stress or overwhelm is goal conflict. We feel like when we're parenting, maybe we should be working. When we're working, maybe we should be hanging out with our family more. And our technology reminds us of these different roles that we have in life. And so my one of my colleagues has a great study showing that even parents who turn off their alerts at a science museum when they're with their kids report greater meaning and less opportunity cost of that leisure time because they're not worried about all the other things they could be doing, the work projects that they're not engaged with while they're spending time with their kids. In And the other condition had their alerts on like normal. All of us almost always have our alerts on, especially when we're out with our family. And they show that in that condition, parents didn't enjoy the science museum to the same extent and felt really stressed about all of the other things they could or should be doing. So this is why technology really is one of the modern time traps. It's supposed to free us from the office and instead we take our offices everywhere we go. And this has really increased in this work from home environment. So it's really important, especially while you're trying to enjoy leisure and truly be present in the moment and spend quality time with people you care about, that you turn your alerts on your phone off and put your phone away, like away from you, away from where the leisure activity is happening. So you can be fully present in the moment and not worried about all the other things you could or should be doing. I was terrible for that. Actually, when I worked in that very high pressured role, I used to check my email on holidays. And and my rationale was, Oh, well, I'll just clear them. So I don't have this massive backlog of email. And I'm sure that resonates with many of our listeners and viewers. But one of the things I started doing was I I asked the head of IT to change my password and not tell me what it was. <laughs> so I would I couldn't actually check it. That's a great commitment device. I love <laughs> so we had a deal. I, he would just do it and not tell me. And then I just couldn't check it. Be and uh, but, but now I actually delete the email app from my phone when I go away. But I'm sure we'll have some dumb phone, smartphone gadget in the future where we'll be able to just switch modes. I do think this is really important, though. I mean, I also struggle with technology and part of the constant responsivity is, is an organizational problem. We use in our modern work environments, we actually use responsivity and connection as a proxy for commitment. We shouldn't, but we do in the absence of other more objective criteria that like making widgets in a factory and how many widgets did you make? So I think this constant responsivity and it's in part because we have a habit around constantly checking our phones and devices, but it's also because we get rewarded for fast responding. So we've been trying to move away from focusing at the individual level when it comes to workplaces and actually create team norms around responsivity that are very clear. We don't expect a response between nine to five. I will put an auto alert if I'm, you know, after 5 p.m. And we set these norms at the team level. So then all employees feel like they actually can disconnect from their technology. Because something else I also hear quite a lot of is, well, if my boss emails me, like, of course, I have to email them back right away. Or if my client emails me, if it doesn't matter what time they they're emailing me, their email is important and I can't miss it. And so, of course, that's not true. And we overestimate the impression costs of not 
asking, like we overestimate the extent to which not responding right away is going to make us seem uncommitted. People don't actually care, but we, they, we think they're going to care. Um, <laughs> so I do think that there's something to be said about creating team norms or organizational norms that are very clear. So we don't feel like we have to respond even if we don't want to. And I heard that taken to the absolute extreme where organizations actually reported employees for actually sending emails after the allotted time. And also, you saw this in France, where they outlawed it, it was uh, illegal to send emails after a certain period of time. And everybody's like, Oh, typical French, blah, blah, blah. But I was like, that's exactly what should happen. Because if it happens at a societal level, it becomes the norm. People do what they're incentivized to do. <laughs> so if you disincentivize emails after five, no one's going to send emails after five. And that should, from our data, promote societal well-being in the, in the process. One of the other traps you talked about was um, the cheapest cost culture. And this will make absolute sense in the backdrop of Black Friday <laughs> and coming up to the, the, the January sales, etc. Because chasing deals is a bum deal. Yeah. So it's so interesting to me. Um, I'm Canadian, as I mentioned, and this is definitely more pervasive in US culture than in Canadian culture. We just have less options. So I think it's part of the fact that in the US, you have a vast amount of consumer options for literally every purchase. I remember when I first moved from Vancouver, I went to the supermarket for the first time, I wanted ketchup. And at home, you just, there's one bottle, like there's one kind. And in the US, there was like an aisle of ketchup. I was like, uh, like I just, I, I, is there a difference between these ketchups? Uh, <laughs> and so this overabundance of choice also means that, you know, we can research our consumer purchases to a great extent. And I do talk about the fact that researching deals can come at a cost to our time and ultimately our happiness. It might not actually be economically worth it either. So if the value of your time is $20 an hour based on your annual salary, and you spend three hours re researching for the a toothpaste that costs a dollar cheaper, then you've actually lost money from an economic perspective, quite a bit of it. And you've also lost out on the opportunity to spend that time in meaningful and happier ways. And I think this is actually one of the traps that is really common. Most of us engage in this activity. I think that there's some data suggesting 80% of Americans spend at least two to three hours for every purchase that they make that's about $100. <laughs> so it just it shows how much time is going missing in our lives to researching to get the best deal that isn't actually worth the economic savings and definitely not worth the time cost. Uh, I notice me and my partner hold each other accountable to this. He's he's one of these researching types and will literally sit on his computer toggling back and forth between merchants online trying to save $3 on groceries. I'm like, babe, like how much time is this costing? Like how much time did you how much money did you just spend on the time that you could have, uh, you know, saved just by purchasing the cheapest option, and then we could have hung out together. So I do think that this is one habit that we all have, that isn't always necessarily worth it. So if you catch yourself researching for the best deal on a small consumer purchase, ask yourself, is this really worth my time? Or should I just pay for the slightly more expensive option instead?
And the other thing I think is it makes you angry as well. Like when you're doing that, it's it's a it's a it's a horrible task to do. Like you wouldn't be asked, if you were asked to compare prices in work, you'd be like, oh, I don't really doing that, you know. So why the heck would you do it voluntarily? So I think this is an a, an important point. I think some people actually find this satisfying. I think my partner gets some satisfaction from researching and finding the best deal. And so this is a broader point that when we're thinking about giving up money to save time, such as by choosing the more expensive option that's less of a that has less friction costs associated with it, we don't have to research, it's just the default option. We do have to think about making those decisions in context where we're the activity that we're buying ourselves out of is unpleasant. So we want to be thinking of buying ourselves out of the most negative experiences. Um some people really like cleaning, some people like researching, some people like mowing their lawn. And so my research does not suggest that we should outsource those activities. Instead, we should keep doing those activities and find other activities we don't like and outsource those instead. So that brings us to I'm going to jump ahead because we're running out of time. <laughs> and uh, this one is your solutions. And this one is funding time. And one of the questions I get asked all the time, actually, is how do I have time to read? And I made some fundamental changes. And I was delighted to see them articulated well in the book. For example, I, I sold my car and I decided I'm this so this is pre 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 global pandemic. So I decided to take the bus. Now I hate getting the bus. But I decided to get it really early when it was empty. And that gave me a time to read both on my way in and the way home. But I went to the bus, I went sorry, I went to the gym on the bus. I got there really early when the gym was just opening. And the time I would have say the time I would have spent in a commute driving, getting angry, not being able to read, um, fuming at traffic, all that at parking, all those things were removed. And instead, I replaced them with reading and going to the gym. And I had done those things before I would have even started my day otherwise. And that gives context to what you talk about funding time, and some of the surprising examples. Yeah, so I think your example actually is a really good example, not necessarily of funding time, you're actually saving both money and time in your example, because you're commuting. So I'll, I'll come back to your example in a second. I think your example is actually, um, or I've come, I'll come back to talking about funding time in a second. Your example is actually a very good illustration of finding time. So you're pairing together activities like a commute with another activity that's more positive. And so instead of you know, being frustrated that you're spending a long time commuting, you're actually substituting that commute time or bundling it rather with another activity that's positive and meaning for you, meaningful for you, like reading. You can also do this if you have a car commute. You could listen to an audiobook. Um, and so we want to be finding these opportunities to pair disliked activities with more positive activities. So my partner and I listen to audiobooks while we're cleaning the house. And so that makes cleaning the house feel less negative. And it's also imbuing that time with a personally important goal of us listening to more books and listening to podcasts, staying on top of the news and of current events. When it comes to another strategy I talk about in the book, this is about creating those opportunities to have more free time by buying yourself out of things that you don't like doing, or that are getting in the way of you having enough time to do other things that are meaningful or personally satisfying. So this is a strategy of funding time. My research suggests you don't need a, to be a millionaire or to win the lottery to do this. So we've shown that even spending $40 
to save yourself time can have causal benefits for happiness. So when we gave working adults $40 to spend on a purchase that would save them time, this produced greater happiness than getting $40 to spend on a material purchase for themselves. And there's some really good, simple examples that come to mind. So ordering takeout, but you also have to be aware that that takeout is saving you time. So you don't get the benefit of time-saving purchases unless you're being deliberate. I'm making this purchase to save myself time and doing what you did in your example. I'm going to spend this time deliberately in ways that are personally important to me, like reading more or spending time with friends and family. So we have a new working paper on autonomous products, given that they're increasingly common in the consumer marketplace. And what we find is that just owning a Roomba, just owning an autonomous product doesn't do anything for your happiness unless you see it as a time-saving device. People who see their autonomous products as saving them time on an everyday basis also feel more in control of their time and report spending time in ways that are more consistent with things that they want to do and more meaningful and social activities. So I think this brings up sort of a broader point, like giving up money to have free time, part of the benefit is just you don't have to spend as much time doing the dislike thing. You don't have to spend as much time vacuuming if you bought a Roomba. However, that's only part of the story. You also have to substitute that free time with activities that are likely to bring meaning, joy and satisfaction. Beautiful. And and I, I also think about energy. So if you think about decision making fatigue of all those ketchup bottles for you, not having to make that decision saves mental energy. And And I think that's such an important thing that, you know, not commuting and giving the fingers to some traffic means you haven't expended the energy there. So you can use it for something positive, uh, as we just discussed. I'm aware we're running out of time. So I thought maybe if we shared one, if you have time, <laughs> if, if we shared one exercise that our audience can take, and then we'll wrap up the show and you start the toolkit with really, what is your default setting? The first activity that you should um, engage in is understand your default setting. So really ask yourself, are you more like Taylor? Or are you more like Morgan? Are On a daily basis, in the course of making more major life decisions, do you focus more on time or more on work, productivity, and making money? Just by knowing your default frame of mind, this can help you align your consumer decisions and the way that you spend time on an everyday basis to offset your focus and make sure you're living a balanced and happy life. I want to give another exercise to viewers today, which is the first place to start when going on a time affluence journey is much like what you would do if you were trying to improve your finances as well, is that you have to do a time audit. Ask yourself in the last typical work day that you worked, what were the most positive activities, the most meaningful what were the most stressful and unproductive? When it comes to the positive activities that you engaged in, can you do more of them? And what were they? And for the activities that were both stressful and unproductive, could you delegate that? Could have you said no? Just by starting to inquire about how you spend time on an everyday basis and start seeing how you spend time, how much time you spend in positive and meaningful activities versus negative, stressful, and unproductive activities, just by doing this simple time audit, you'll be able to identify areas of efficiency and happiness for you, given that what brings us happiness on a daily basis will look different for all of us. So it really starts, living a time affluent and happier life really starts with understanding for you, what brings you joy and satisfaction, and how can you do more of it on a daily basis? 
So actually, I, I want to just remind our audience, I have a copy of this brilliant book up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter, and you can be in with a chance of winning a copy of Time Smart. I wanted to finish with a with a I love your conclusion. I was sent to you off air of the book. And I'm going to quote as you do, Dr. Zeus in the final chapter, as I'm doing that, I'd love if you prepared a, a sign off for you, because I know this work is deeply meaningful for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so driven and driven to do more. I know there's way more books in you and you're probably writing on them already. Where can people find you if they want to find out more about your work, etc.? I'm on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, send me an email. I'm always love hearing from viewers and readers about how they're trying to live a time smart life. And Ashley, as well, you have a toolkit as well that goes with the book. I, I saw that recently you shared. Again, I think the really the driving force for me in writing this book was I know I'm a time nerd. Uh, I've been studying this topic for a long time, regression tables, academic papers, the whole thing. Yet knowing and doing are two different challenges to solve. We need to know what makes us time poor, but then we need to enact strategies on a daily basis to help counteract the factors that make us time poor. So I worked with a wonderful editor at Harvard Business Publishing, Scott Bernardo, who loves charts and workbooks. And so we developed a science-based a set of tools to help all of us put these time smart strategies into practice on a daily basis. So it's got questionnaires and surveys and diagnostic tools and implementation strategies and Excel macro to calculate your happiness dollars. It's really comprehensive and based on the best science available. So it's it's a, a pretty fun and practical addition to what is already a pretty practical book to help all of us actually walk the talk when it comes to time and happiness. It sure is. And it's it's actually quite short, but it's so full of information. Obviously, you were efficient as ever with, with your writing as well. I was not allowed. My book editor said, you cannot write a long time. <laughs> you cannot do that to your readers. You cannot say that time matters and then steal their time from them. And so I could have written a 600 page tome at this point in my research career, but I was not allowed. My book editor held me back from that very appropriately. So you're welcome in advance. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up with this quote, and then I'm going to let you close today's show. So here it is, Dr. Zeus. How did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? And I share that because I think it's so important that people have dreams and ideas and visions deep inside them. And one of the goals of this show is to give information that helps people release that and energize them and encourage them to chase those dreams. And I think this is why your work is so important and why it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. How would you like to close today's show, Ashley? We were just talking about the fact that in the epilogue of the book, I, I mentioned one of my late colleagues, Clay Christensen, who was a remarkable scholar, academic, pracademic, writer, a legendary figure in management and, and in business communities all over the world. And while he was battling with cancer, he wrote about, he wrote an HBR article that has a lot of themes similar to my book, although I wrote my book first and then read his article. And he really asked in that article to consider how at the end of your life, will you measure the life you've lived? And I think this is so important to keep in mind. What are you going to be on your deathbed thinking about? It's probably not that work meeting. 
It's probably the Swiss Alps trip. It's probably the connections that you formed with friends and family. Regardless of how successful you were in your professional career, you're going to be thinking about the people you loved and who loved you. So it's so important on an everyday basis to keep in mind the bigger picture. What is the change that you're truly trying to enact in the world? And is any one demand that's on your plate in a given day helping you accomplish that goal? If not, why not? And can you start acting with intentionality on an everyday basis so that the way that you live your days on an everyday basis is exactly how you want to have seen to have lived your life? And so with that, I think to really put time smart strategies into practice, it's about reminding yourself of the things that truly matter and living on an everyday basis in line with those goals and values. Author of Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life, Ashley Willens. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was awesome. Thank you so much. It was so fun. Thanks for all the great questions. It was such a great conversation.